Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, June 17th, 2011. Today we're going to wrap up my conversation with Phil Johnson regarding John Piper's interview of Rick Warren and Warren's theology. tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris roseborough and i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you think biblically help you think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god even if they are the most dearly loved authors christian preachers teachers yeah well everybody gets to have what they say compared to the word of god it's we're well that's just the way it goes including me so anyway um Yesterday, we started uh, uh, <laughs> the next part of my conversation with Phil Johnson uh, regarding uh, his, uh, jo- uh, regarding John Piper's interview of uh, Rick Warren. I, I'm not going to bore you with any more intro. Let's just get right to it. Uh, this is the next piece of it, and uh, this will take up the balance of today's program. I'll pause to pay some bills somewhere in the middle of it. And, uh, yeah, anyway, here's uh, the the balance of my conversation with Bill Johnson. This is not your father's saddleback, or this is not your father's megachurch. Some of those things are different. But I I do believe uh, in, uh, obviously, in fact, if you listen to my preaching seminar, I have a three-day preaching seminar, and I have an entire sentence on you're not preaching the gospel uh, sermon session on you're not preaching the gospel unless you're preaching repentance. In fact, it is the fundamental message of Christianity. It is the change. Now, uh, by the way, I, I've sat through this, and he's what he's saying is correct. He does say that that uh, you aren't preaching the gospel unless you're fundamentally preaching repentance. But the way he defines it is, it goes back to what we played last time, it's this idea that sin is you believing a lie of the devil, and you have, and then the pastor's job is to figure out what those lies are that people are believing so that they can give them the, you know, teach them the truth, and by knowing the truth, then their behavior will change. That's how he defines it. So, you know, what... what yeah, what, and, and in fact, that's the danger, Chris, I think, of putting too much stress on the on the actual derivation of that word mm-hmm. and stressing that oh it's a change of mind it's a change in the way you think no no the biblical concept of repentance is much more than merely a change in the way you think right because uh, you can't e- you can't it. even you can't even change your mind unless god gives it to you to do that 
And the, now we're talking about the doctrine of regeneration at this point. And in in Rick, you know, he, he uh, yeah, we, we continue. Is the metanoia? Now, here's what I disagree with with some people. Some people think repentance means change in behavior. And I tell you that that is the fruit of repentance, not the root. Yeah. There's not a single Greek lexicon yeah, yeah. that says repentance means change, yeah. stop doing bad. Bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. Exactly. That's exactly what John the Baptist taught, and, and that's what all the others taught, too, in that repentance is the way I change my mind. It, the, the modern word for repentance is paradigm shift. Ah. I used to think that... Yeah, I, 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 don't think that's, I don't think that's a correct synonym. No, it isn't. It isn't. I, you know, uh, genuine repentance will will result in a paradigm shift. Yes. But to say that the two things are equivalent. So every time you have a, a paradigm shift, that's that's equivalent to the biblical idea of repentance. I don't think so. And I, in fact, one of the things I've written about and and lamented about the late twentieth century, early twenty first century church, is that there seems to be a proliferation of young guys who think that it's really cool to have a major paradigm shift every five years or so. So yeah, just whatever because they think it's today, cool. they're going to be renouncing tomorrow. Right. Yeah, it's always the, the, it's as if the, whatever is new is, is truer than the old. Yeah, and that's, that's not, that has nothing to do with the biblical idea of repentance. Yeah. Repentance is always a turning from sin and a turning towards God. Yep. And yes, it involves a change of mind. It's fundamentally a change of mind. Yeah, and it's but daily. It's not, just, it's not just a change of mind in general. It's certainly not a change of mind in how we ought to do church philosophy or whatever. It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Mm-hmm. It's one turning. Yeah. But in, in turning to, to God, you are turning away from sin, and that's what repentance entails. Right. And it looks like a, a lost sheep and the shepherd leaving 99 and going out and finding that lost sheep and picking it up and dragging it back to the flock. That's what it looks like. Right. The thing is, it's not a complex idea. You no. Know? In fact, it, calling it a paradigm shift actually makes it more difficult to understand, not easier. Yeah, that's right. You know, let's continue. This way about my sin. Now I think this way. But you wouldn't say, probably, I mean, could hear people over sure. my over, shoulder yeah, exactly. saying... You can have a wonderfully changed mind, and everything stays the same in your life. Like, no, you're still sleeping not. with your girlfriend. No, no. You're and still stealing at the office. You're still reporting. And that's for why work. the Bible says, "By their fruit, you shall know them." Yeah. But it is the fruit of repentance, not the root. Right. In other words, it is it is not my behavioral change that saves me. It, that is the proof that I have been saved, no doubt about it. And my change does come with I see God differently. I see, and here's the interesting thing. For me, when I repented, it was not a negative. People ask, like, repentance is a negative word. To me, it's the most positive word in the world. It's yeah, actually an yeah, act of joy. Yeah, I turned yeah, yeah. from darkness to light, yeah. from hopelessness to hope, yeah, yeah. from guilt to forgiveness. Yeah, when you read the Reformers, they talk about repentance in such a way. It, it's talking about sorrow and contrition and, and things yeah. like that. Well, when you, when you read the Bible, it says that, too, that godly sorrow, you know, works repentance. It, it, it's it's also a false disjunction. You hear this frequently in these postmodern times, for people say, "Well, that's not a negative; it's a positive." Every negative entails a positive. You can't turn from something without turning towards something else. Right? You can't you, you can't be you can't be joyful about your salvation unless you're sorrowful about your sin. The two things aren't at odds with one another, and and he doesn't seem to grasp that. Right. You know, it, it, 
repentance is both a positive and a negative thing. And yes, the long-term results are more positive than negative. Yeah. And, the, and the fruit is rejoicing. But you see this throughout Scripture. Right. Do that we, does what it, precedes the rejoicing are the tears. Right. Do we always have to put a candy coat on everything? I mean, do we, do we always have to have a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down here? Do we always have to do theology with the Witham thing in, in, in mind? Ugh. Well, it, it goes back to his dualistic approach to, to truth that, you know, there are these two contradicting ideas and I can affirm them both. But notice while he, while he, at least with lip service, affirms them both, there's always one side of the truth that he prefers, and that's the one that comes out in his preaching. You know, you can tell what he really, really is attracted to and excited by and yep. committed to by what he preaches. Yep, that's always the test. You want to know what a pastor really believes? Listen to what he preaches. Because th- th- at that point, he's not putting on a show for anybody. He's, he's, he's letting what's in his heart really come out. Yeah, in fact, you know, that's the lamest defense uh, against any charge of uh, false teaching or deviation from doctrinal standards or whatever to say, well, you know, look at our doctrinal statement. I sign this every year. Lots of people cross their fingers when they sign doctrinal statements. Right. What really tells me what you believe is what you preach about. Exactly, exactly. Let's keep going so we can get some more done here. From me running my life to Christ running my life. So an implication, I think, would be that as you preach to professing believers, which I I do every Sunday, um, I don't think I'm contradicting their security in Mm -hmm. Christ. Their Romans 8.28, those of me justified, he glorified security Mm -hmm. by warning them if they continue in such and such, or if they do this, they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. This goes back to where, of course not. Not at all. In fact... Again, I, I, I believe, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You know, it's not of works, as no man should both. And I also believe, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Right. Th- those two are not pitted against each other since he just confessed the imputed righteousness of Christ. Yeah, right. You know, Jesus himself said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot be saved. And to the, you know, somebody listening to that, they're going to sit there and go, whoa. Well, of course their righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees because we're given the righteousness of Christ. Why, why did he pit these two verses against each other when he just affirmed imputation? Yeah, you know, in fact, I had a hard time uh, following the train of thought that led him to uh, Ephesians 2 in this context. What Piper was saying, just before he, he interrupted with Ephesians 2, Piper was saying, look, uh, that, that he didn't think he was... Um, he was undermining anybody's security by trying to expose the the phoniness of false faith. He didn't right. say it in those words, but that's basically what he was saying, that, you know, if you're continuing in sin, you, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's challenging people who think they're believers, uh, but their lives deny it. He's challenging them to, to examine themselves. He's not undermining security. He's undermining false security. Right. That's what he was saying. And, and it's like the point just utterly escaped Rick Warren's mind because I don't think he thinks in terms of the, the dangers of false faith. No. I, I don't, no. He doesn't seem to have the concept in his mind that people can profess to believe and not really be believers. Right. No, I, you're, I, you might be right. It's like a, it, it, that category is missing in his theological furniture. Okay, let's keep going. 
I have no problem with both of those verses. I have no problem. Yeah, okay, well, I hope that helps some folks because I saw that here. Just a few more on the gospel. Do do you think that, and and maybe this has already been answered, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the solos, that that's a good, solid summary of of the gospel? I believe in the five solos. Yeah. 100% 100% believe in the five solos. Right. And, and, and I am, uh, to those of you who know what this is, I'm a monergist. I don't call myself a Calvinist. I don't. I have to say that. I don't call myself, but I am a monergist mm-hmm. in that I believe that it is not a... Can I point something out here? He two times pronounced it wrong. Yeah. He's, I, I'm a monergist. Well, he's not accustomed to using those theological terms. <laughs> right. I, it, it, again, it just slays me that he'll avoid a simple term, a fairly simple term like the word repentance and and uh, or sanctification, an important right. theological term like sanctification, and then just toss out the word monergist, although he mispronounces it. Twice. Yeah. I mean... I, <laughs> but, see, that's the sort of thing that makes me, listening to this, I, I, I'm trying to be careful not to judge his motives and all of that, but he comes across here like uh, uh, a chameleon. Right. He's, he's trying his best to say things that he knows Piper's going to affirm and agree with and be pleased with, uh, yep. but he's he's clearly not accustomed to saying these things because he's already said he doesn't like to use theological language, but here he keeps throwing in words that he's not accustomed to pronouncing and can't pronounce correctly. Right. And and why is he doing this? I, I can't think of any reason other than that he is he is trying very hard to be what he thinks Piper wants him to be. Yeah, Piper wants him to be a monergist, you know, and believe in monergism and uh, and Rick Warren here is affirming that he's a monergist. You know, it's you know, seriously, if this was a, if this is a theological category and and uh, doctrinal piece of your of your theology that is central uh you're not going to have a hard time pronouncing monergist yeah it you know i'm sorry i'm just not buying it i've seen him do this too many times let's keep going my works it is it's it's one-sided right right when you do you dislike the name calvinism Mm -hmm. because of key doctrines that are wrong are because of connotations it would carry. Only or the it, connotations. Only the, and I, I say this in true love, but I wish that those who believe in the doctrines of grace would be more gracious. Yeah, yeah. That's all I'd say. So you you don't have... You big meanies, that's what you guys are. You, you Calvinists are nothing but a bunch of ungracious people who believe in the doctrines of grace. I've heard this so many times, It's I don't even think it's a valid argument. Well, I don't ever defend myself against the argument because, I, you know, honestly, I think there's, there's, there's too much truth in that to, to, to be able to credibly deny it. Uh, however, I think it's a fallacy to think that uh, Calvinists are any more prone to meanness. I mean, Roger Olson keeps making that complaint, but he can be as nasty as anybody when he wants to be, and he's, right. a, he's a rank Arminian. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't defend myself against that charge because I do tend to be nasty sometimes, not deliberately, and I and I and I, I don't want to delight in it. But I'm a sinner, you know. I admit it. And right. I have a I have a tongue that's too sharp and too quick, and uh, a lot of Calvinists do. 
So do a lot of Arminians. Uh, well, have you read any Luther? He's a little bit colorful too in his uh, with his pen. Um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the reality is, is that uh, Luther Luther sort of sets standard. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I am sorry. None of you Calvinists even come close. No, I, <laughs> you seem like <laughs> flat out civilized people compared to uh, Herr Luther. But yeah, that would be a good defense. Actually, I said I don't defend myself, but yeah. I should. We should hand Rick Warren a, a volume of Luther's table talks unedited <laughs> and say here read this and he'll yeah. come back we'll send him great. a co- we'll send him a copy of uh, luther's woodcuts you know and you know some of the cartoon illustrations that went with some of his pamphlets yeah yeah whoa but uh, here's the deal is that truth and theology and debate it's a rough and tumble world and it's it's not for the faint of heart and the reality is is that people get impassioned in their in their discussions on these things because it matters these are not things that don't matter and if, if you know sometimes people cross the line in their impassioned defense of the truth no problem i even do it that the the, the that and it's it's like it's not even the point though we all come to this as sinners. We all come to this as sinners. And sure, we could be more gracious to each other. I completely agree. But let's keep, let's stop, let's stop changing the topic and let's focus back on the theology here and the importance yeah. of these concepts. Yeah, frankly, I think that's one of the banes of our era that people are, are polite to a fault when it comes to matters of eternal truth. It's not polite to clam up and refuse to give someone the gospel in the name of politeness. And Rick Warren's about to deal with that. Later in the transcript here, he's going to talk about a confrontation he had with a Jewish woman who asked him point blank, does that mean I'm going to hell? And he he acknowledges that he, he was sort of reluctant to say to her, yes. I think all of us feel that tendency because it's what our culture sort of conditions us to do. That is not the proper Christian approach to dealing with polemics when it comes to matters of eternal importance. Right. And and uh, people constantly complain about anything that's too harsh or too outspoken or too, too certain or whatever. It's all deemed unkind and ungracious and all of that. That's based on an artificial approach to, to dealing with matters of truth. That if you applied that standard to Jesus himself, it would condemn him. Yeah, yeah, he's the one who called down woes on the Pharisees and the scribes, called them, called them names, said their mothers were snakes, called them whitewashed tombs, and uh, and you know and you read uh, Matthew twenty three, but um, you know in that same vein though, when you read church history, like uh, for instance uh, during the uh, the Pelagian controversy. In the May of in May of four eighteen, the, the a council of three hundred bishops met in Carthage, uh, and uh, it was a council of Carthage, and they actually pronounced anathemas, curses upon uh, different uh, Pelagian her- her- heresies, you know, do- doctrinal statements. They weren't they weren't trying to get along and be nice with Pelagius. They they flat out called him uh, you know a heretic and and said that if you believe his doctrines, you are accursed. And they they weren't pulling any punches. I think we need to recover some sense of that. Yeah, but then again, I learned my theology from John Wayne. So, okay, let's keep going. I have a problem saying I embrace the doctrines of grace, but I'd rather not be connected with some people who... You know, again, I don't call myself, you know, my Baptist background is Baptist. And I'm proud of that, but Mm -hmm. I don't go around calling myself a Baptist all the time either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm a... I'm a John 3.16 Christian, 
I'm an evangelical. Uh, you know, I believe the doctrines of grace. And justification. Okay, I mean, this really irritates me. I, I'm not a Baptist. I'm Baptistic in my theology, but I don't think I've ever been a member of a Baptist church. Uh, but when people ask me, you know, what's your theological stance? It's, it's, it's a very easy shorthand to say, basically, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Baptist. Right. I'm a, I'm a particular Baptist. Okay. Uh, Calvinistic Baptist or whatever. Uh, in fact, I don't mind putting those two terms together. Both of them seem to make him cringe, Calvinism and Baptist, you know. But again, it's like he's, he thinks there's some kind of virtue in obfuscation. Right. To avoid terms that are clear in order to do these circumlocutions that soften everything that he thinks anybody might sort of take offense at or whatever. Right. Well, look, if you're a Baptist, say you're a Baptist. What's wrong with that? Right. I mean, does he say he's an American? I mean, you know, when he travels the world, is he? I, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a North American. I, you know, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, there's the, labels have particular meanings for particular reasons, and it, it, I don't have a problem saying I'm a Lutheran, and uh, you know, I, it, I, 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 in fact, it, it frustrates me the guys in our in in our denomination who. Uh, go out of their way to hide uh, what they are. It's like, why? Yeah, I know. And some of the, it's not just Rick Warren. This is very popular today. You know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Can you imagine any Muslim saying, I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Muhammad follower. I'm a follower of Allah. You know, <laughs> you know, it's, it just seems like a bunch of silly word games. You know, well, and, and it reflects an embarrassment, I think, with, uh, with with something about Christ or His people or the Church or right. or the history of the Church or, that's entirely unwarranted and uh, and and unbecoming for a believer. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Here we go. We've touched on uh, imputation matters. To Absolutely, you. It's right it at the core of the Absolutely. gospel. Absolutely, it is the core of the gospel. So you don't you you. Him who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of yeah, God. Second Corinthians five nineteen is yeah. right 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 at the core. And yeah. I, I just want to underline it because today Well that's the that's our sin imputed to Christ. At least he got that correct. Yeah. You know. Well and it's also I think you got the reference wrong. It's second Corinthians five twenty one, but uh but you know, he's right that that is the core of the gospel. Right. But, but again, if I'm John Piper, I'm saying if that's the case, why isn't it more at the forefront of your message. Right. Why do you come up with bizarre things like the Mulligan Theory of the Atonement, you know, that, that seem to contradict any of that? We've got to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, I think even in evangelicalism... Um, there's wishy-washy on that. Well, there's not only wishy-washy. Yeah. It's just said it's not in the Bible. Yeah. That, that imputation is not there. Yeah. And I could name names of yeah. people you, you know, know and I know yeah, that... Right. N.T. right ...that are breaking my heart, yeah. that they have departed from what we always thought was historic Protestant Christian, and biblical, biblical, biblical exactly. teaching to right. say what you need is forgiveness of sins and for the imputation of your sins to go to Jesus. Yeah. You don't need the imputation of his righteousness to go yes. to you. Yes. Yeah. And I will say this. There obviously there are, there have been historically many different theories of the atonement and I think each of them has a part but I think fundamentally it is the substitutionary understanding that God Jesus took our payment. Yeah, no, I, I want to point this out. He says this privately, and, and I, in, I, it, there's evidence that he preaches this publicly, too. I can point you to instances. It's not, 
it doesn't happen often, but it does happen often enough that uh, he can be convicted of believing in, in uh, substitutionary atonement. So I, I, he's, I think he's telling the truth here. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I'm going to sound like a nitpicker here, but he's just not careful with his language. Did you hear the way he said it? The substitutionary understanding of the, uh, that God, Jesus, took our payment and you can't understand. That's, those are his exact words. Jesus didn't take our payment. He he he, made, he took our guilt and yeah, paid for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now that yeah, could have been just a slip of the tongue, so I don't want to make too much of it. But it, but it, it suggests to me somebody who's just not accustomed to dealing with these things carefully. Right. It, this is this is a conversation that he doesn't normally engage in. You know, it, 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 I don't know. It, 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 I guess the closest thing I could point this out to is it's like the person who. Uh, has to wear a tuxedo every few years, you know. It never quite fits right and doesn't. It kind of feels scratchy, you know. I feel like he's put on the tuxedo so that everyone can see what it looks like in the tuxedo, but he doesn't normally wear it, you know. And my my daughter's getting married, so I had to get fitted for a tux. That's why I came up with that. <laughs> I'm sure you'll look stunning. No, there's nothing that you could do to to make that happen. Let's keep going. And you can't understand. Yes, he did defeat the works of the devil. Oh, yes, he is an example of love mm-hmm. and sacrifice. And I believe all of these are pictures. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental one that was my problem, and I, I just tweeted it this morning. I just literally tweeted it this morning that said, the reason Jesus came to earth is because the law could not do what we needed That's to do. Okay, and only Jesus could do it. Right. Uh, that that's a little bit weird there. Uh, no, the the, the the Galatians text says if a law had been given by which we could be saved, then Christ died for no reason. It's a little bit different than what he tweeted. And by the way, I can't see his tweets because he's blocked me. Yeah, uh, although I I think he's actually referring to Romans eight there, where it says what the law could not do, Christ did. Coming, you know. Right. But so 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 he's right, and and and. Uh, Again, it could have been worded better, but it's a tweet, you know. Right. And so you're, you're limited to 140 characters. And my question is, why, why? Again, why isn't this more at the forefront of his teaching? This is the first time I've heard him mention the law. Yeah, exactly. In the whole thing, and it's in a right. it's in a 140 character tweet. Right. Yeah, we'll have to bring his tweets to bear on his theology, you know. Well, I just want to hear him expound on it. It's great that he tweets it, you know. Not not critical of that, but right. But but hey, you know, now that you've tweeted it, expound on this truth a little bit. Right. And he doesn't do that even in this context. Right. Let's keep going. Right. So okay. substitution is right at the heart. Uh-huh. And say a word about propitiation, and uh, meaning. Was God angry at all human beings because of their sin, and and wrath rested upon us, and He loved us enough so that He would? I mean, if I were in a court, I would like you know objection leading the witness here, you know. It's, oh man. yeah, well, and and the pauses there were were, uh, you know, maybe unintentionally, but said a lot. He says. Say a word about propitiation. Silence. Right. And then Piper goes on and explains, you know, a little bit about what he what he wants him to say. And you know, let's see if Rick Warren actually adds anything. All right. 
insert, intrude his son between his own wrath and us so that he became a curse for us and, and the wrath is diverted onto the son from us. Is, is what I've just described? Well, you just, you just said it perfectly. <laughs> you just, yeah, I, I, I just put my stamp of approval on it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, man. No, he didn't add anything, did he? No. He just said, yep, that sounds good to me. Yeah. Okay. Last year, uh, uh, in the seven weeks before Easter, I did the seven last words of the cross. Okay, and I, I preached through that right up to Easter. And uh, the, the doctrine of propitiation, you cannot have Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, without understanding propitiation. The Bible says, uh, at that point, God looks down on his own son, and he says, son, you know I have said in numbers, I will by no means clear the guilty, not even you. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I, that's, that's, I wouldn't normally object to that because I, I think he's, he's pretty close to the thing here, but that's all he says about propitiation. And, and see, I, I think he muddles the issue, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, he, he, underst it, he understands like the big block here. And I and, and yes, Eloi Eloi Laba Sabachthani falls somewhere in the big block, but that's not the standard text you go to. Yeah, to yeah what about he, the claim he makes there isn't true. That you can't you can't affirm that Jesus said that without understanding propitiation. Lots of people quote that text and don't have any understanding of propitiation at all. Right. In fact, I got a guy. I got an emergent guy. I got his book, and uh, he he basically claims that uh, Jesus becomes an atheist. On the cross, when he cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" That's Peter Rollins of the Emergent Church. He basically he doesn't understand propitiation at all in that uh, text. Instead, he, Jesus becomes an atheist. Yeah, well, a lot of people that that's that's not really even an original view. There's been so many people who have skewed the idea of substitutionary atonement by saying, you know, Christ became a sinner. This is common among the televised charismatics, you know that Jesus actually became a sinner on the cross. And that's what I mean when I say, I think Rick Warren kind of muddles it here. He doesn't acknowledge that some people misunderstand that. He mm -hmm. basically says, you can't affirm that verse and, and not get the doctrine of propitiation right. But the fact is, people do. And people say, you know, this means that Christ became a sinner or, or he became an atheist or he was somehow guilty as he hung there on the cross rather than that he was reckoned guilty, which is something entirely different. Right. And, and, and he goes on and says, I will by no means clear the guilty. He's quoting a verse from Numbers that God says, and he's not even you. And leaving the impression that Christ was somehow guilty rather than being reckoned guilty, uh, that our guilt was imputed to him. Right. That's something you, you really need to explain carefully. It's interesting because I wrote an article on that very subject just today. So it's fresh in your mind. Yeah, and, and you have to deal with that when you deal with that passage or 2 Corinthians 5.21, which he keeps quoting, uh, God made him to be sin for us. What does that mean? Right. I mean, that's, a, that's tough language, and, and you have to be very specific in explaining what it means because it does not mean that God made him become a sinner on our behalf. It means God imputed our sins to him. Right, and imputation goes both he's ways. He's, he's, 
he's affirming imputation. I, I assume he understands that, but I just want to hear him explain it. And and he doesn't do those kinds of explanations. No, and uh, he like I said, he's got some kind of a in his mind. He's got the big block, but he doesn't. I, it's like it's not fine tuned in his theology. It's it, it, it's you know, it, we're but get- which is which is exactly a metaphor for how a lot of these seeker sensitive guys do doctrine. They have a, a doctrinal statement, the big block, right. which they sign off on and put up somewhere or, or store away somewhere so that they can point to that and say, see, we're orthodox, we're evangelical. Right. But it never comes out in their preaching. That's the big complaint here. Right. And as a result of it, the, the doctrine itself remains somewhat foreign and alien uh, to them, so they don't really know how to discuss it properly. When you talk about propitiation, you cannot talk about it without discussing the wrath of God and how Christ's death on the cross, in a, in a way, kind of ricochets God's wrath off of us and onto Him. It's it's you, know, it, it, you think of the thief, not the thief, but the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. When in English it translates, uh, you know, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner," but in the Greek it's "propitiate me." I mean, he's in the temple courts. He's pointing to the sacrifices going on in the temple, and he knows that God's wrath is being propitiated because of them. You know, yeah. you know, you can't discuss propitiation without discussing it in these terms. And it's not propitiation is a tough, tough word to unpack. But it's it's vital. It's absolutely vital to a correct understanding of the atonement and the doctrine of justification. Right. And everything that's essential to the gospel. Paul actually uses the word, and and so does the apostle John uses the word explicitly in their epistles. Right. So they expect us. The biblical writers expect us to understand that term. It's a big word. Yes, it's yeah. a hard word. Yep. Not as hard as you might think, but it's not the sort of word that has its meaning on its face. So it it needs explanation. And and. I just I don't hear those kinds of essential explanations not only from Rick Warren but typically from most of the seeker sensitive guys. It's why they preach on issues that deal with self-fulfillment, self-fulfillment and success in business and things like that. Right. And 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 it's not that they overtly deny important doctrinal truths, but they deny them by neglect. Right. And the result of that is the the next generation who's never heard these doctrines taught don't take them for granted. Right. You know, maybe Bill Hybels took for granted the doctrinal statement that they locked away in a vault somewhere when they founded Willow Creek. But the next generation of Willow Creekers didn't, and that's why right. today Willow Creek is in the process of transforming itself into a kind of emergent mess. Yeah, exactly, you know? because you know, when you neglect these doctrines, when you don't rejoice in the tough words like Hilasterion, uh, you know, you don't pass the, that appreciation for those doctrine and those truths on to the people in your congregation, and they—I mean, they don't—they have no clue that this is even a biblical doctrine or that it's important because it's never been taught as if it is. Not even you. Right. And, and, and so he took that wrath on him, uh, self, and at that moment. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you don't understand it, you don't understand how much God loves you. Amen. Let's go to prevenient grace, the grace that uh, brings me to Christ. And- oh, man, I, I got to... I'm sorry, but prevenient grace is a category in, the, in, in Arminian theology. Do we, do we dare get into that topic? Yeah, although I, there is a... There is a- a legitimate spin you can put on the term prevenient grace. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. This it, it, it's just you know in my First, understanding the, of, of the monergist Arminian debate, 
And I b- really truly believe Arminianism is still a form of Pelagianism. It's a soft, it's a soft version of it. The idea behind prevenient graces is that God literally gives you the grace to bring you to take you out of total depravity to bring you to a, neut- right. a neutral position. That's the position. Arminian view of prevenient right. grace. Yeah, but, pre- the, but the word prevenient simply means it comes before. So the grace that comes before my response. <clears throat> I, I think Calvinists shy away from using the term prevenient grace because of its association with uh, Arminianism. But the term itself doesn't necessarily mean the Arminian view of pre- prevenient yeah, I, well, and the, I think careful, careful use of uh, categories and and uh, and definitions would be in order here because I mean here Piper just throws prevenient grace out onto the table and it's like that is a, exactly that is a big fish here. I, hear, I yeah, mean exactly, you know. and you're dealing with someone who admittedly uh, doesn't like and and isn't isn't comfortable with uh, theological technical theological terms, and you're using what. An Arminian would consider a technical term that pertains to his doctrine, right? In a in a totally non-Arminian way, right? An Arminian would hear this and basically, oh yeah, that doc, that prevenient grace that brings me to that neutral point so I can make a decision for Jesus. It's like ah, <laughs> but he he brings this up because I think he's about to he's about to deal with the one place he says where he actually wrote no in the margin. Yeah, that's okay. a good. This is a good section. Let's listen to okay. it. Okay, we'll, we'll we'll keep our comments to a minimum so we can get some more through here. That enables me to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Here is the one place where I found a sentence that Rick okay. Warren said that I stumbled over. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we'll, 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 we'll I retract go it. I, well, only one. Oh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Right we'll see. I, I mean, it's. it's um, so here's what I mean. Not everybody will understand where I'm coming from. Let me. Okay. You said on page 174. This is not the problem one. Sure. I'll get there. All now. right. All right. It is, uh, you it know, is the, I, I know we want to keep our comments to a minimum, and I don't want to interrupt, but th- th- this is just so important. You notice, and he's joking, but it's not entirely joking. Right. The minute Piper says one sentence I stumbled over, he, oh, okay, I'll retract it. I'll retract it. The thing is, he's, he's, he's playing up the caricature of himself as sort of chameleonic. He doesn't even right. know yet what Piper's going to object to, but he's willing to retract it already. I think he's saying it as a joke, in fairness, but but it really reflects the way he's dealt with issues throughout this entire interview. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think you're right. Let's keep going. Holy Spirit's job to produce Christ-like character in you. Amen. It's his. He, you're a monergist. You right. just said that. You want to just in two two sentences define it? No, go ahead. Okay. I mean, you, All you right. Know. Never mind. <laughs> Oh, you want to define priceless. You want to define monergism? Uh, no, you don't. No, it's okay. no. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Never mind. <laughs> oh man. Um, uh, we'll get there without defining it explicitly. the The Bible says God is working in you, and you're quoting here Philippians two thirteen. Yeah, right. Uh, God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey Him mm-hmm. and the power. So when I read that, I thought, great, yeah. love that sentence. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. seems biblical to me. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you continue to, to speak carefully with the word through. At least I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt sure, here. Sure. On page 174, you say, how does this happen in real life? Through the choices we make. And mm-hmm. I'm totally a choice guy. I mean, okay. we do make choices. Sure, sure. Absolutely. And they matter. And something's happening through them. We choose to do the right thing in situations and then trust God's Spirit to give us His power, love, and faith uh, and wisdom to do it. Now, at that point, I'm thinking, ooh, what's coming first here? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, how, how, how is this working? Now, here comes the sentence that I put a big no in. Okay. It's the only place I wrote a big <laughs> no, I think. I had, okay. yeah. um, 
that, that's Holy a stunning, uh, yeah, a stunning statement again by from Piper. I, I, I have the copy of uh, the Purpose Driven Life that John MacArthur read and marked in, in his margins. After he finished it, he loaned it to me, and I, I, I basically kept it and bought him a clean copy and gave that back to him because his notations were so priceless. <laughs> And, uh, you should auction uh, that on eBay. I'm sure you get a fair price for it. Yeah, well, let, let me just say that neither John MacArthur nor I limited ourselves to one no. <laughs> I couldn't get out of chapter one without <laughs> highlighting and underlining and all that kind of stuff going, no, this is something really wrong here. You know, the, when when I have to go to the, the end notes to find out what Bible passage he's quoting and looking at, at what he's doing, I mean, oh. You know, I, I appreciate uh, John Piper's generosity here. He's trying to be kind and all of that, and and that's good and that's nice. But this is an important issue, and this book has been read by literally millions of people. Yeah, and and it it disturbs me greatly to hear John Piper be so non-critical about it. So so because I I know having read that book and having read dozens of John Piper's books that. There are many things in in the purpose driven life that should have caused Piper to to write no in the margins and to to cringe and and uh, disagree with. But I think he's reading it with an overly sort of charitable spin, clearly trying to interpret everything in the in in a light that he can agree with. Yeah. And I, I think for a book that's been this widely read and that influential, that's as unclear and and muddled and devoid of gospel truth as the purpose-driven life is, that's that's just not a fair treatment of this book. Yep, I agree. And, and particularly when then he, he takes all the critics of this book and collectively just throws them in the bin. Yep, well, all of us are all just the same. Let's keep going. This is his power. The moment you take a step of faith, obedience unlocks God's power God waits for you to act first. Yeah, let me explain. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I can let see me why, explain. Yeah, I can. I can. I can see why he said no to that. Let's see what he does here. <laughs> that, yeah, I, I hear where you're going on that. I would not apply that to sanctification. I think that's a misapplication, and I probably should have clicked. Wow. So we're gonna apply it to justification then? Yeah. I mean, well, that's worse. I don't. I don't understand this defense at all because I. Piper wasn't talking about sanctification, I don't think. Yeah, wow. Okay, let's keep going. That's a misapplication, and I probably should have clarified that better. Because what I'm saying there is I'm, I'm thinking of the children of Israel stepping into the Jordan. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. now, that wasn't their choices. God had told them to do it. Mm -hmm. So there's an obedience there. And it was only after they stepped in the way parted. And I think there have been many mm -hmm, examples mm -hmm, in my life mm -hmm. where God has asked me to risk, take a risk, and then he does the miracle. Okay. I would not apply that across the board okay. as a sanctification. Yeah. Not at all. Okay, that's really, really... Notice the, the, uh, the uh, I'm hearing from God and I've got to take the risk because God has told me to do something risky. Uh, this is one of the. This is kind of one of the major themes in, in a lot of seeker-driven, purpose-driven uh, pastors in preaching, and uh, I, I, I would even say the emphasis, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable here. Even in his reading of uh, the the children of Israel 
crossing the Jordan. The emphasis should not be on their, quote, obedience. The emphasis should be on the word of God that said that God would do those things because God, his word is true and you can be trusted. You know, he, he's, he, this obedience thing always comes out in his theology, and I think it's, it's always cockeyed, and, and the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. Okay, we are going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, Mysterious Majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious. He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Small mind. Ah! My appendix just turned inside out! Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics! What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out! Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read. Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. Here come the Navy SEALs. What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. What do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. Too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude. Game over. Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't that 
anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. You want it open? It's open to you, Fantastic Mystery. Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. We're back. Warning, the uh, Rick Warren soundbite I'm going to play at the end of this interview is epic. You don't want to miss it. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we truly do depend upon you, our listeners, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, head on over to FightingForTheFaith.com and remedy that. The way you do that is uh, when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute. You can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And and those of you who support us, I, again, I just have to thank you for uh, for your continued support and making it possible for us to keep bringing this program to people. Okay, we're going to continue with uh, uh, the, the the final balance of my uh, conversation with Phil Johnson regarding uh, Piper and uh, Rick Warren, and uh, you don't want to miss the ending of this thing. You that, that's all I can say. You just don't want to miss the ending of it. There's um, there's a soundbite that I'm going to play that many of you may not have even heard, um, <laughs> and uh, when I play it for Phil. Um, uh, I get the feeling he didn't hear it either until I played it for him. Anyway, 
Without any further ado, here is the the final segment of my conversation with Phil Johnson. Let's keep going. Helpful. So yeah. let me let me restate what I heard in the first quote sure. and see if, if you, you mean it sure. the way I'm understanding it. Um, it says in Philippians 2, work out yeah. your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah. And then it gives this ground clause, for uh-huh. God is the working. one who's working in you yeah. to will and to do and to work. So. Yeah. I'm concluding monergism in yeah. sanctification sure. to mean sure. that um, if I do choose to stop stealing things at the office mm-hmm. or to stop cheating on my tax report or yeah. to stop... Okay, I want to point something out here. Piper said he's assuming monergism in sanctification. But all of the quotes that I've been, <laughs> I've been playing from Warren throughout our two times that we've uh, done this... Um, I don't think you can make the case that Warren is dealing with monergism as it pertains to sanctification. I don't think you can make that case at all because his emphasis in his preaching is always about you having to obey. You've got everything's a test, and, and you've got you, you didn't know that you, this was a test, but you've got a lot of catching up to do, kind of stuff. Yeah. Plus, Piper's Piper's making a very specific and and valid point here that. While, yes, Scripture often calls us to make a choice, it calls us to obedience all the time and all of that, when we take that step of obedience or make that choice, we realize after the fact that that choice was, Piper's word I think is prior enabled. In other words, that my my obedience even, Mm -hmm. although it's my obedience, it's enabled by by the grace of God. Even my will... Right. Is is steered by the grace of God in some way that when I choose right, when I do right, I, I always have to confess that was the grace of God working in me. Right. And, and that's what the passage he's quoting means. Uh, work out your own salvation because it's God at work in you. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, I worked harder than anyone else, yet not I, but the right. Spirit of Christ that was in me. And that's always Paul's emphasis that... Uh, that while, yes, there's a choice for me to make, there's work for me to do, I have to confess that the only way I can do that, and when I do it, the only way I did do it, is that it was enabled by the grace of God, and so all the credit always goes to God. Yep. For everything good I do, everything wrong I do, I get the blame. Because right. that's, that's me working then. Yep. And this point utterly escapes uh, Warren, and even when he looks at that verse, work out your own salvation, because God work in you. He he wants to play clever word games with the with the English translation, which says "work out, work in," and so he wants to make it a contrast between working out and working in, and that's really not the point at all. Right. The point is that the work that's being done, while I'm the one working, it's God who's doing the enabling. It's God who's at work in me. Right. Yeah. Let's let's hear that's that. It's a crucial crucial aspect of our sanctification, and and. I don't think Rick Warren gets it. No, no, he. I don't think he does either. Looking at pornography, my yeah. choices to do that have been prior enabled Absolutely. by the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, well, I, as I believe, you don't have the power to make those good choices. Right. My, right. my, my decision-making power is broken. I, I believe this. Okay, and this is why we we teach this in, in our what we call our Celebrate Recovery program. That willpower is isn't going to work because your will's broken, mm-hmm. and and I cannot choose 
to to do the things that I want to do. That's Romans 7. So that, See, it's good. You, again, you get a, a glimmer of understanding yeah. here, and you think, okay, that's right. That's good. But so so develop that, Rick. Develop it. Explain it more. Make this the... But then he, he moves on to the next aphorism, and, and and within five minutes again, it sounds like he's teaching work salvation. Right, yeah. The, I, I like it. The, one of the things I when I review Rick Warren, it, a thing that fascinates me is, is that he offers something with one hand, and then as you're about to grab it, he takes it away with the other one. It's a weird technique that he does. He un, he'll make a statement and then undo the statement. It's weird. By the way, do you do, – is it – strike you as it does me how many of his comments uh go back to what he recently preached what he just tweeted what we teach in our celebrate recovery i mean he he's constantly yeah uh, pumping his own his own merits <laughs> right it's 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 like uh too many product placements in the video you know <laughs> yeah exactly I, yeah and I'm not a big fan of Celebrate Recovery. I mean, turning the Beatitudes into uh, into some kind of a 12-step program is bizarre. Yeah, I don't know how well, you... It, it's just that sort of um, syncretism, and it really is syncretism, to blend Christianity with a 12-step uh, yeah. system. That It's just that sort of syncretism, that approach to, to, to you know, sort of cobbling his theology together with secular sources and biblical sources yeah. that's what makes his teaching so confusing well at the same time it uh, makes it very appealing to uh, people in the world i mean you know who are naturally confused and really don't need any more help on that with from rick warren <laughs> hey well he does a fine job of keeping them in that state so let's keep going um, even after you are born again yeah. and have a new nature, yeah. you are dependent on the Holy Spirit to uh, awaken, prompt, enable the good that God calls us to do. Yes, I, I do believe that. But what I believe is, I love the, the, the phrase Paul uses when he says, I do believe it, and now here comes the word play. Worked out your salvation, for it is God who is working in. Mm-hmm. Now there's a working out and a working in in the same verse. Okay. Now, what is work out? Well, notice he doesn't say work for. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's important. Yeah. He's not saying work for either your salvation or your sanctification. Right. Okay, he says work out what God is working in. Right. The only way I can explain this is when I go to a gymnasium, when I work out, I'm not working to create muscle. I'm working, what I'm doing there is I'm working out the muscle God has already given me. Mm-hmm. If God hadn't given me the muscle, there's nothing to work out. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, and, words, and more muscle grows, but muscle had to be there to get I, you started. I can grow the muscle mm-hmm. through some working out, but I can't create muscle. muscle. Okay. The muscle initially came from God. Right. And so to me, the working out is not working for. Yeah, yeah. It, it is it, it's basically exercising what God gave you. Yeah, and the nerves came from God. Yeah, it and, all came and from the, God. The explosive and the blood synapses between and the hair follicles and and as that passage says, the desire to go to the gym. That's right. <laughs> now, implication for total depravity. All right. Or what? Okay, this ought to be interesting. Whatever that is, yeah. depravity. Yeah. Um, would it would be right to infer from yeah. what you've said about the new birth that sure. you believe that our inability to awaken ourselves yeah. 
to faith and to begin this glorious purpose-driven life, we can't. We can't do it without God's sovereign... I just go back to Scripture. And that not of yourselves. That's my case. And that not of yourselves. And that meaning faith. Uh, Even the faith. Even the faith. Even the faith. And that not of yourselves. So totally... That's good. I I wish he did rest his case there, but that's not what you get. I wish he'd make that case a lot more often. Yeah. You know... Uh, in that yes. way of saying it would mean totally unable to get my salvation started. Exactly. Okay. And I, I think I, that's, I totally believe that. It, 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 some people take total yeah. to mean you do as many bad things you could do, and clearly you could do more bad things as an unbeliever than you do do, but it, that, that's not the point. The you point know, is I I'm totally unable. Again, I don't use total depravity as much as I like to say total inability. Yeah, that that's but, even more different. Okay, I've never I've never heard him use that phrase. Yeah, I mean, oh, like I said, I haven't listened to everything he's ever said. I, I haven't but, either, but I've listened to a lot, and I have never heard him use that phrase. You you could make a long list of terms that he's used in his conversation with Piper that I'd be surprised if you'd ever hear out of his lips. Right. I mean, it makes it it. it <laughs> The, the the cynical side of me basically says, how much you want to bet he reviewed Burkhoff's uh, systematic theology, you know, a day before he met with Piper? Because uh, Burkhoff's systematic theology, almost point number one on total depravity, is is entitled total inability. You know, it, it, it just yeah, it's one of those things where, as as somebody who's listened to a lot of Rick Warren, I've never heard him use the phrase total inability. So. Not saying he hasn't. It's just I've never heard it. It's devastating. To me, to me, uh, it it means. Well, I used this as an illustration last week. We had Easter, and we had uh, one of the miners who was here from uh, the Chilean mine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thirty-three men trapped for sixty-nine days, two thousand feet below the ground. Okay. Now, one of them was Christian. And uh, over the next 69 days, 22 of those guys came to Christ. He came and shared his story. Uh, but the illustration that I used was, now the, uh, they, were, uh, they were unable to pay for their own salvation. Mm-hmm. Okay. They, for all intents and purposes, are dead and don't even know it. Mm-hmm. They're dead and don't know it. Mm-hmm. They're trapped. They're doomed. There's no way getting out. They can't say, well, really, I don't need the government because I've got a spoon. And I'm going to dig my way out of this hole. It isn't going to happen. Now, on the other hand, coming this direction, they're coming down to save them. And the important thing that they need to understand is no way would they ever be able to repay or afford. This salvation, this rescue is going to take tens of millions of dollars and in Ten lifetimes, they could never afford or pay for their freedom, their salvation, their liberation, their redemption, their rescue, yeah. whatever synonym. You've touched That's a pretty on. good illustration, actually. No, it, it is, uh, although... I, I don't see how it fits with the, uh, the earlier clip you, pay, you played about uh, uh, stewardship and all of that, how you can sort of earn, yeah. earn a better place in heaven... Right, and I notice he's mixing two categories here because the topic really is total depravity, and he's doing something different than that exactly. He's taken a different theological category and plugged it in here. Yeah, because he he 
See, and that's interesting because he said I use I prefer the term total inability. Right. And that's what he's illustrating. And and in that sense, it's a good illustration of that. Yeah. But notice Piper's response was that's even more devastating. Well, it is even more devastating if you really understand the ramifications of total inability. Right. But but you get the feeling that what Piper is illustrating is is a kind of toned down. Um, um, view of total depravity that has all the moral content taken out. Your problem isn't that you're morally corrupt and sinful. Mm-hmm. Your problem is that you're you're too weak to do what you need to do for yourself. Right. Yeah. And see, I, when we talk about total depravity, I mean immediately I want to go to dead and trespasses and sins. You know, and and talk about the difference between civil righteousness, um, you know, and, and, and the fact that we can be good to each other and compared to each other, there's different levels of, of goodness. Um, you know, like, you know, you know, you know, some of us, some people, you know, they beat up in, on people and steal and, uh, and they end up in jail and other people feed the poor. That's all civil righteousness, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about total depravity. We're talking about being dead in trespasses and sins and not no ability to, to love God at all, period. Um, and but that's not what I'm hearing here. I'm hearing Piper. I think is on a different wavelength than Warren, and Warren has taken this in a different direction. And I feel like we're farther away from total depravity now than we were uh, just a minute ago. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I, I think that's actually what Rick Warren is deliberately doing here. He's trying to explain the doctrine of total depravity as total inability because he he's evacuated of any moral significance. Yeah. It's not that you're corrupt and depraved, it's that you're too weak. When Piper hears total inability, he doesn't divorce it from the notion of right. uh, of depravity and and uh, moral corruption. Right. Yeah, I want to talk about concupiscence. I mean that when in, our, in my Lutheran confessions that's exactly what we talk about. We talk about original sin. It's it's not just that um you know that you know, I, I I hate God, but it's like I chase after sin by nature. I do these things, and my sinful flesh desires to do these things. Yeah, you know, but that's not even on the table at the moment. Let's keep going. Hell already. Mm-hmm. Um, let me read what you said, and then just get you to say sure. yes to it, or sure. whatever more you want to say. Sure. Page twenty-seven. While life on earth offers many choices, eternity offers only two, mm-hmm. heaven or hell. I like that. I should write that yeah, down. Yeah, you That's should. Good. It's well said. <laughs> you say a lot of things well. If you love and trust God's Son, Jesus, you will be invited to spend the rest of eternity with him. On the other hand, if you reject his love, forgiveness, and salvation, you will spend eternity apart from God. Right. Page 112. Why did God allow Jesus to endure ghastly mistreatment? So you could be spared from eternity in hell Mm -hmm. and so share glory forever. Page 232, the Bible warns unbelievers he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves. Uh, uh, And you put Romans 2.8. And one more, page 284, we must remember that no matter how contented or successful people appear to be without Christ, they are hopelessly lost and headed for eternal separation from God. So it just seems clear to me that this is a a terrible thing you really do believe in because the Bible teaches it. And I would just ask, what's in your mind, what's the nature of it? And and here, I I just want people who are hearing this to know that 
This is one of the hardest and most painful things. We, we shouldn't fight without crying. You yeah. know, I mean, there right. are people who are going to deny hell. They're right. doing that as right. we speak. Right. Um, but I, I, there's so much lightweight criticism of the argument. I just mm -hmm. read it again yesterday in some newspaper that were all over Trevin Wax because of his huh. particular comment. I thought... So anyway, the, the atmosphere of this moment in well, this conversation... Well, that is a stumbling block. There's no doubt about that. Yes. Yeah, so so what is it? What is hell? Well, I believe in a little hell. Jesus believed in a little hell. Jesus talked about flames of fire. I believe in that. But to me, hell is eternal separation from God. It's ultimate loneliness. This myth that people are going to see each other in hell, that they're going to party in hell, that, that's just, it is loneliness. Yeah, see, again, he, he has evacuated the moral significance even from hell, yeah. which, which involves punishment. It, it's, yes, it's separation from God, but it, it, there's a punitive aspect to hell. Yep. It's not merely that you're, you're, you're locked away and lonely. Yeah, it's it's the wrath of God that you suffer in hell. Right, and it, 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 the, what is this? Is the smoke of their torment? The, the, you know, that's the Book of Revelation. The smoke of their torment rises before the Lord forever. I mean, loneliness. I, <laughs> it makes it sound like hell's not so such a bad thing. I mean, maybe if you're an introvert and you don't like being around people, you might yeah. like hell. You know, for an antisocial person like me, right? I mean. As long as you have a few... As long as I have an internet connection. Yeah, and, and a few books. I mean, you'd be fine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Unloving to not tell the people the truth when you know it's there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so we, we cannot wage on this, and I can say with a clear conscience that in all of the public interviews, every time I've been asked about hell, I, I shoot straight on it. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's real. Yes, it's re Jesus talked about it. People will go there. I was speaking at Aspen Institute one time, which is the brainiacs of the world. And a woman gets up and she says to me, I'm Jewish. I'm not going to accept Jesus as my Savior. Am I going to hell? Now, everything in my human nature wants to backpedal and make it safe and make it comfortable and say the politically correct thing. But I can't do that mm -hmm. because I fear God's disapproval more than I fear hers. Mm -hmm. And I also love her enough to tell her the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, so what did you say? Well, I'll tell you, the way I said it is a way that put, takes it off of me mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it it's tends, we often, when people bring up, the, and I would say this to pastors, don't make this your opinion versus their opinion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lay it off on Jesus. Mm -hmm. Every time. And so I said this. This is what I said to her. Everybody's betting their life on something. Okay? Atheists are betting there's no God. Buddhists are betting on Buddha. I'm betting my life that Jesus Christ was not a liar. That Jesus Christ was telling the truth. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, I didn't say that. He said it. I am the way. Not a good way, not the best way, not one of the ways, not a nice way. I am the way, mm -hmm. the truth, and the life. No one comes. I'm betting my life that he was telling the truth. 
Now, see what I did? Yeah. I took it off of me mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making me the authority and, well, that's your word against mine. And I right. said, wait a minute. Right. I'm just saying, I'm putting my trust that Jesus, yeah. Yeah. who split history into AD and BC, is not a liar. Yeah, that's good. Okay, now I'm going to pause there. Um, I don't know, I don't have access to uh, Rick Warren's conversation with that Jewish lady at the Aspen Institute. But um, I do have Rick Warren using this exact technique with a, with a, with a Jew on national television. And the Jew is uh, Alan Combs, uh, formerly of the Hannity and Combs show. Uh, back when Rick Warren uh, wrote his book, The Purpose of Christmas, and was out making the, the media rounds in New York City. I mean, he showed up on just about every media outlet, uh, did the tour there in New York City. Uh, he showed up on the Hannity and Combs show, and this exchange almost is word for word the, the exchange that he describes with this uh, Jewish lady at the Aspen Institute, but it's with Alan Combs. And I want you to listen carefully to this because there's a little bit more to uh, this exchange than what Rick Warren said with John Piper. Here we go. One of the things that says, for unto you is born this day a Savior. And they say, well, I don't need a Savior. Well, believe me, if you didn't need one, God wouldn't have sent it. Because, uh, because he wouldn't have wasted the time. And, and Jesus meets every one of our deepest needs. And what we need to do is accept his gift of our past forgiven, purpose for living, home in heaven. Hey, Pastor, did you just say Pete off? Okay, now that's Alan Combs. No, I didn't say that. You, I can't believe you said that. Uh, I might have. But... <laughs> yeah. All right. Let me ask you, you. You talk about, okay, so you think everybody needs a savior. I do. But what about those people who don't, you know, not all, I happen to be Jewish, not yeah. everybody. Yeah. I, Jesus, by the way, and I have a lot in common with the same religion. Absolutely. So not everybody necessarily goes that route. Well, see, that... the thing is, Alan, I believe Jesus Christ came for everybody. I don't think he came for Christians. Uh, the Bible says, uh, take this good news to the whole world. I don't care whether you're Baptist, Buddhist, uh, Mormon, uh, Methodist, Jewish, uh, Muslim, or no religion at all. Jesus Christ still loves you. You still matter to God. Uh, true, and I think that's a wonderful message. But if you don't accept Jesus, if yeah. you're not somebody who goes that route religiously, yeah. can you find your way to heaven? Can you still be going well, to the same place when it's all said and done? Are I'm not the authority on that, but I believe Jesus is. And everybody's betting their life on something. Jesus said, I am the way. I'm betting yeah. that he's not a liar. Well, okay, I'm betting okay. that, he, that he told right. the truth. But what, about, what does it say for all those people who do not accept Christ as their personal Savior? I'm saying that this is the perfect time to open their life to give it a chance. I'd say give them a 60-day trial. Is that yeah, a 60-day okay. 60 60 trial? 60-day trial. Like the book of the month See book. if you'll change your life. I dare you to try right. trusting Jesus for 60 days. I do. Your money. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Oh. Now you wonder why I think he's a, that he's a Pelagian. <laughs> I mean, somebody who believes in the doctrines of grace and believes in total depravity cannot say to a Jew, "Give Jesus a sixty-day trial and see if he doesn't change your life." I mean, that's not only a confusion of the gospel. I mean, it 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 totally denies uh, total depravity and original sin. I mean, and, and turns Jesus into a commodity that his goal is to make your life better. And that's, that's what awful. That's, that's what just, that's what he said to a Jew. That's breathtakingly awful. I I've, I have nothing to say about that other than just that's awful. So the technique was there. Yeah, he said I'm betting. You know, I'm betting my life on the fact that Jesus was right. The technique he described to Piper that he used on the lady at the Aspen Institute he used that same technique on Alan Combs, and then 
followed it up with give Jesus a 60-day trial. Wow. So, I mean, I mean, what do you do with this? I mean, over and again, here you have, you know, I guess the whole purpose of this interview is to clear the record regarding uh, Rick Warren to, you know, John Piper, to give Rick Warren the opportunity to speak what his theology is and let everybody know that he believes in the five solas, that he believes in the doctrines of grace. He, he believes in total depravity, total inability. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a monergist. And, and you know... And then, Listening to that, when when Alan Combs asks him that question twice, right, uh, about four or five biblical answers suggested themselves to my mind. I, you know, I want to hear him quote Paul. Right, God commands all men everywhere to repent. Yep. you know, that would have been a real simple answer. But mm. give Jesus a sixty day trial. Can you imagine? And just put that in in Paul's message on Mars Hill and see how it plays. Right. <laughs> Jesus, a 60-day trial. Can I get my tithe money back if it doesn't work out? I mean, I mean, I mean, where do you go to refund your Jesus if you're not happy with it? <laughs> Again, here, I, I, see, knowing what Rick Warren has said on the record, and I've covered this for years on my blog and on my radio program, I can't reconcile what Rick Warren says in public with what he says in this interview. The two are as far away as the East is from the West. Yeah. Wow. I've rendered you speechless. I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> you, you've rendered me nauseated. I, seriously, I, I don't even feel good after. we got to stop this. <laughs> I, I, I think we're going to have to stop. Because I mean we're 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 pushing close to three hours here, and uh, and you know we've still got you know technically thirty minutes left of this uh, Piper Warren interview, but I think we've done this to death. Um, the idea here is is that uh, I think your charge that Rick Warren is chameleonic is is a valid valid charge, and and that we, I think we've substantiated that when we compare what Rick Warren has said in this interview with what he said all over the place in his in his pulpit. Um, uh, you know, at the TED conference, uh, what he said on national television, uh, in both you know the the Christmas sermons, uh, what he said at the Easter service, you know, uh, 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 last year, what he said on Hannity and Combs show. It, there's a big disconnect with what Rick Warren is saying here, or what John Piper's trying to help him to say, and what Rick Warren yeah. has said publicly. The the the, yeah. the the two are far away from each other. Yeah, Chris, and I, I have to say. In all honesty, I, I love John Piper. He's one of my favorite preachers, but I am severely disappointed by the way he dealt with uh, Rick Warren and, and this whole thing for a, for a year and a half, this sort of campaign to, uh, I don't know, broaden the circle of, uh, of the young, restless, and reformed so that they'll embrace Rick Warren and his pragmatism. I, I think it's, it's an absolutely catastrophic turn of uh, events for John Piper. It's... it's uh, it's a misuse of his influence, yeah. and I'm just badly disappointed in him for it. And, and you know, I mean, he, he's been one of the sort of prominent features in the Together for the Gospel movement. And, and the whole idea there is what unifies us is the gospel, our common commitment to the gospel. It clouds the whole issue to bring a guy who's so fuzzy on the gospel into the mix and say, 
this and and this is really the sort of the condensed message I'm getting from John Piper. He's saying basically this this fuzzy, confusing presentation of of gospel blended with you know twelve step programs and everything else. This syncretized view of monergism <laughs> is is good enough, you know? Yeah. It, it's good enough to, to sort of wrap our arms around one another and sing kumbaya. That's that's the very mistake uh, the whole evangelical movement made, and, and Christianity Today led the way on. The idea was, you know, we, we, we continually broaden the the circumference of our fellowship, and, and, and that, that's how we grow our movement. And right. what it actually does is destroy the distinctives of the movement I, I see this as a threat frankly to the to the unification that 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 I had hoped would come as a result of together for the gospel the gospel coalition and movements like that I, I think it's a serious threat and and yeah. it grieves me that it's happening and that some of the leading figures in that movement ha- have really sort of kept silent on it yeah, I, not not reacted at all. Right, an analogy that I think you know, I'm 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 trying to come up with something that I could just that epitomizes this. This would be you know, what Piper is doing is the equivalent of if, if John MacArthur, you know, 15 years ago, um, was you know had invited uh, Robert Schuler to speak at the Shepherds Conference. And uh, and was doing what he could to, to uh, try to make Robert Schuler into a you know an orthodox sounding guy you know despite all the things that he's that he's done on the record that you know that you put him far outside of orthodoxy methodologically as well as theologically I think the same can be said about Rick Warren I think he's become our this current generations this decades this past couple decades robert Schuler. I, that's i when i think of robert Schuler, i think of rick warren the two go hand in hand just you know one after the yeah. other it's the same it's the exact same uh pragmatic philosophy that underlies what they're doing yeah and i don't know if if the problem is that john piper doesn't really have um a a, a full grasp of uh Rick Warren and his influence and all, but I, I didn't get the feeling in this interview that he was really trying to probe for that. It's, right. it's more that he was he was clearly he, he announced at the beginning he wanted this to be an appreciative interview. Mm-hmm. He he kept saying things like "I'm going to help you out here" and and he would suggest answers and things yep. like that. It's not it's not a it's not a very helpful approach to to sort of dealing with someone who at very best is marginal. Yeah. And and um, I, I I don't I don't really understand what Piper thinks it helps other than that when he announced he was going to do this he he in that same announcement back in I don't know April of last year or whenever it was when when the word first got out that he was going to have uh, Rick Warren speak at Desiring God along with the announcement he he issued a sort of plea that let's not get all fundamentalist about this you know let's not separate from one another and he's He's saying, let's not make the the mistake that the ultra separatist fundamentalists did, you know, in fighting with one another, so that they're, you know, hostile to one another and dividing over secondary issues and all. I don't see this as that kind of thing at all. No. In fact, I, I think the problem here is not that the young, restless, and reformed are in danger of becoming a new kind of fundamentalist movement or repeating the errors of of you know the the extreme fundamentalists. What I see happening is John Piper 
repeating the errors of the neo-evangelicals who right. basically threw out separation altogether and decided that the thing to do is embrace as many people as we can possibly and conceivably embrace to the point where now Christianity today really seems to have no standards. Right. Yeah. You know, it. it's... I, I appreciate his diplomacy. I appreciate him sticking up for a friend. And it, I, I think it's perfectly fine for him to have a friend in Rick Warren. I have heretics that are friends, but I'm not going to try to resuscitate them or pa- pass them off as orthodox when they're not. Yeah, and to give credit where credit is due, you have to say I appreciate John Piper's valiant defense of the gospel and the yep. doctrine of justification by faith in his own preaching and in the books he's written. Yeah, I love. I've never read a bad book by John Piper. Right, uh, and and I love to hear him preach. I, I I love his boldness. I love his passion. I love everything about it. Uh, but I think this move with this 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 highly publicized and deliberate sort of move to to bring Rick Warren into the circle of uh, the young, restless, and reformed it sort of undermines seriously, rather seriously, all of the all of the good that. Piper has done in his defense of the gospel because the very thing that happens here is the the gospel is clouded and and muddied and he's losing ground that he fought hard for and that disappoints me yeah no it is disappointing and I don't know what you know what I don't know what the fruit of this is going to be you know three four five ten years from now I, I don't know where this is going but um I've you know I've seen on the blogs that some of the younger reform guys um they're not uh, you know, they're not being critical of Piper here. They're basically saying, "Well, see, he's brought he, Rick, this, Rick Warren's okay." So uh, you know, you guys. Yeah, it's curious. And in fact, there's a whole culture of those guys. A lot of them Southern Baptist guys, high-profile bloggers who uh, yeah. just suddenly guys who would have been critical of that sort of pragmatism uh, just suddenly uh, become champions of uh, of uh, Rick Warren. And I wonder, you know, how far is that going to go before somebody? calls a halt to it and says, wait a minute, let's think about this critically. Right. Because nobody seems to want to think about it critically. And, well, you know, one of the, one of the, I think, rather fair complaints about uh, the whole culture that's created by uh, the Gospel Coalition and, and Together for the Gospel and the big movements like that and, and uh, uh, you know, all the big conferences that we all go to and appreciate is that it, it, we, we've sort of created a cult of personality where there are these, you know, high profile celebrity um, Christian leaders yeah. who have their own little followers. And I am of Paul and I am of Apollos and I am of John MacArthur or I am of John Piper. And 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 that's a dangerous uh, rut to get into if you're going to say, well, my hero here can't be wrong. I can't be critical of him. I can't be, I can't, I can't uh, disagree with him on anything or, or, or I can just switch off my own thinking and let him do the thinking for me. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the death knell, I think, for, for the, the gains that have been made by the young restless reformed. Yeah. And that would be my, uh, that would be my challenge to them. You know, the apostle Paul did not get a pass by the Bereans. The, the Apostle Paul had his gospel checked against the word of God by the Bereans. And it, it, it says in Scripture that the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, specifically because they took the time to compare what Paul preached to them to see if, it, if that gospel really was the gospel that was taught in the Scriptures. 
And uh, I think that that same level of sobriety and Berean tenacity is is needed here. And uh, my hope is that, you know, our conversation, uh, you know, in in these uh, episodes of Fighting for the Faith will provide at least some kind of a counterpoint to basically say this is not everything that it, it, it is cracked up to be. I, I, you know, when Christianity Today covered this uh, interview, they made it sound like there was such great theological depth to it. But when you push on the so-called theological depth of this conversation, the, the, the whole thing comes down like a house of cards. It, yeah, there's some good things that Warren said, but at the same time, how do you reconcile the things that he was saying with Piper here with the things that he's been saying in public for years? Yeah, and, and in fact, one of the criticisms I would have is that while there are a few good things that Rick Warren says there, and, and I think we tried to point those out, uh, all of them lack depth. Yeah. You know, he'll say it, he'll throw it out and, and throw it away and walk away from it and then turn around and, and undermine it with something that's totally incongruous. And, and meanwhile, touting this hermeneutic that allows him to affirm contradictions, you wonder, is there any coherence to what he actually believes at all? Does he find that a desirable thing even? Right. And, and yeah, and Piper, I think, wanted a more in-depth discussion. Piper is the consummate uh, sort of diplomat, or at least he is being in this, in this interview, but I, I, think, I think he was more, far more diplomatic than was helpful, yeah. given the fact that this was promised as an interview where he was going to ask the hard questions. And, he and didn't. I don't think any of those were hard questions. Anything that threatened to be a hard question, Piper volunteered the answer on, on Rick Warren's behalf. And even at that, Rick Warren didn't always take the bait. Right, yeah. I mean, when, when, when I mean, he put words in his mouth when asked to give a quick definition of monergism. I, I really, I think Piper comes out the loser, and I think Warren comes out the winner in this situation. And I don't think that's a good thing for the church overall. No, it isn't. And Piper's not the only loser either. I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think it, it, it's a... It, 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 it's, it's a tremendous step backward from some of the gains that had been made by the gospel coalition together for the gospel and yeah. and the young restless and reform movement it, it confuses issues the very issues that those groups said they wanted clarified right i i think that this is a time you know when we look across uh, christian history we've we've faced all kinds of different heresies heresies that deal with soteriology heresies that deal with the nature of god heresies that deal with the nature of jesus christ um, I think the the problem in our days, I think we're dealing with a heresy of ecclesiology, and and I think that there is a clear biblical ecclesiology uh, that is being shoved to the side, and new innovations are being brought to the front uh, that are not compatible with the ecclesiology revealed by God's word. And as a result of it, and it's all being done in the name of freedom, that we have the freedom to do these different methods, all in the name of evangelism. And I think that's the thing that has to be challenged, and we have to go back to the biblical text and take a look at the very office of the pa- of pastor that is revealed in Scripture and the the duties that go along with that office for the person who holds that office in the congregation. And uh, I think we have to go back and so soberly re-review what God's Word reveals regarding what the church is supposed to do and what the pastor's office is about and what duties are to be dispensed. And uh, yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons why we're having the problems that we're having. And, and Warren's pragmatic views, I think, fly in the face of sound biblical ecclesiology. 
Amen to that. And and uh, you and I, the guys in our generation and younger, cannot afford to repeat the mistakes of the 20th century. Right. Uh, and there were serious mistakes on both sides of the evangelical fundamentalist split. Yeah. And those two movements both melted down because both of them, uh, when, when they split from one another, they they uh, they lost whatever the good they could have learned from one another, and yeah. and they both began to emphasize their worst traits. Yep. And the fundamentalists turned on one another and tore themselves to yeah. pieces, and yep. the evangelicals decided to embrace anyone and everyone and lost the distinctives of their movement. Yep. And out of the ashes of that rose what what seemed to be, a, a, you know, a, a movement that, that was going to be con- committed to the gospel, committed to the clarity and purity of the gospel. And, you know, how old is Together for the Gospel? Not very. Six years? Yeah. And within six years' time now, we face this, this, this what I see as a, a serious threat to the clarity of the gospel coming from you know, the influence of one of the men who was more or less one of the founding figures of that movement. Well, I think Michael Horton put it best. I I think his critique was that uh, some of these uh, younger reform guys think that they can hang on to the doctrines of grace but marry it to the methodologies of uh, of revivalists like Charles Finney. The two do not go hand in hand. They cannot, they are mutually exclusive. And uh, and I think Rick Warren really has found a, a, a powerful way to uh, reinvent the the, uh, the revivalist uh, methodologies of Charles Finney, he's just come up with a postmodern 21st century uh, slick version of doing it. And my fear is is that it's going to end up with the same results with the burned out district. I you know I my fear is is that you know 10 20 years from now the hardest place to preach the gospel is going to be uh, in South Orange County. It could well be. Yeah. Well, Phil, thank you for your time. You Thanks have, for having me. You have been more than generous, uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I apologize that we can't get through all of this. But I think we, I think at this point, it's pretty clear, you know, where the problems are and what, and in, I think we've done it. Yeah, so, it's definitely enough. Yeah, it, I, I, when they, what do they say? When the horse is dead, dismount. So. <laughs> I think we've done this one to death, but uh, I again thank you for your uh, your insight and uh, and your commentary. It, it, it absolutely was uh, beneficial. So, all right, thank you. Looking forward to the next time. Anytime. Uh, all right, thank you, Phil. Yep. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. I, I, I there's nothing more I can really add to this. So uh, the only thing I say is, what'd you think? I'd love to give, get your feedback. You can email me your feedback, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.